Welcome to episode number 11 of the National Land Realty Podcast, where we discuss all things land. Our goal here is to inform, educate, and entertain those of you who own land or are interested in the buying and selling of land throughout the United States. My name is Mac Christian, and I am the Chief Marketing Officer here at National Land Realty. I'll be your host for this episode. Today's episode is a discussion revolving around commercial development in rural communities with National Land Realty land professional Angelina Lawson from Kansas City, Missouri. In this discussion, we cover the benefits and pitfalls of rural communities for commercial ventures. We will walk through how to overcome some of these challenges of commercial development, as well as some of the cultural dynamics commonly seen in these communities. Angelina Lawson, in addition to working as a land professional, is a registered lobbyist, a former elected official, and is actively involved in the writing of legislation that protects landowners. She has a background in psychology, and that experience is evident as she approaches these possible cultural issues from all sides and has a true understanding of the interactions between commercial entities and rural communities. Now, sit back and enjoy the show. Um, So I'm sitting here today with Angelina Lawson. Angelina is out of Kansas City. Um, Hey, I just want to ask you to sort of walk me through how did you get into the land industry? You're a land professional with National Land Realty, and I just sort of want to understand you know, where did you come from and how did you get into this ball game? Well, I appreciate this opportunity to talk to your viewers. This is, I love land. I have a background in clinical psychology. So I had a private practice. And once I had my family, I wanted to stay home and spend that time with them. And as normal, you, they grow up. And then I kind of say, well, I want to get back in the business. And things fell in my lap that were much more about counseling for landowners And it just became something I said, well, let me get my license in this and let me get specialized. So I went through all the course and I went through Realtors Land Institute and really understanding. And I loved it. It, I'm such a background that's heavy in research and data and statistics. So when I started out on the residential side and I would blow my clients away with all these charts and say, oh, this is such a great house and look at, and they just went, we don't want that. We just want you to say it's a great house and that's it. Like it was too overwhelming. And then I get into the land side and there's never enough information. And that just makes me so happy. So I go out and I get out and walk the fence line and do all the topography and check out the political side and do the due diligence to figure out what is going on in the culture in this community. Is this a good investment for my clients? What are the pros and cons? And sometimes there are cons that I would not normally get into, but my buyers or sellers are interested in pursuing. So then it becomes about options. What are the best options for you and laying those options out? And I think my background in clinical psychology affords me the ability to manage expectations, to be able to know these are the steps that you're going to go into to foresight, to let people know this is what's coming. What are, here are your options. What do you want to do? These are the pros and cons to each option and allow me to be neutral in that. So whichever way they go, if it's something I think would be a little bit harmful, but they're willing to take the risk, then I lay out what the harm may be and then they decide. So a lot of it comes from informed consent and informed decision making process. So my background has really applied into my land real estate business so much in that aspect. 
That's it. It's interesting that you say that too. Like with land, there's not enough information. And it's, I, I feel like that's one of the big differentiators between, let's say, your typical kind of residential real estate transaction. It's like, you know, you have a house, there's granite countertops, there's this many bedrooms. I want to change the floors. Like there's things like that. When you start getting into land, you're right. You have to know the area. You have to know the politics of the area. You have to know, you know, not just that, but conveyances of, of rights. You have to know. And it's not, you really do have to know your neighbor's business. So, you know, you move into an area and you want, you want hunting land, right? Maybe it's a recreational tract and you don't just have to know, everybody wants big animals to hunt on their land. I mean, if they, if, if it is a recreational piece of land, let's, you know, and it's not designated for, you know, farming a specific crop or, or cattle, but everybody wants big animals to hunt, but you also have to know what your neighbors are doing. Like if your neighbors are blasting everything in sight, that's not, there's no chance. Um, so you have to know management plans of your neighbors and water rights. It, it's so much more complex. And, and I, it's funny you speak to that and, and having the information at hand, because that's really the information that people do want in land. Um, yeah. So, so you yeah. wrote an article about commercial development in rural communities, which I, I found to be just, it's a niche topic, but it's so interesting and it's so applicable with everything we've gone through with sort of the the migration that we've seen with COVID to these rural communities, um, how did you come up with the, with the idea to to write about this? Is is what I'm definitely interested in. It's the conversations that I was having in the trenches with the clients, with the farm tables. It was the driveway conversations. It was the feed store conversations. It's everywhere. Everywhere I go, I hear the farmers, the ranchers, the, the families that have been here in the rural areas. There's two sides. There's the angst, the unknowing, the change possibility. Then there's the other side that's excited for the change. Their land is up. Their land is picked. It's the golden tickets, the Willy Wonka. <laughs> it's like the developer sent them a letter and it's the, they, they walk around town and they feel like they've gotten the golden Willy Wonka chocolate bar. And they feel that this is their, their chance to make a difference for their family's wealth. They've had this land for the, in their family for a hundred plus years and they've worked their, their hands to the bone. There's a, such an idea of what rule is and that land is never going to be above a certain price point because you can't make enough money off that land, whether it's cattle or corn. So there's so much idea of a possibility of a golden ticket when someone comes knocking and says, I'd like to buy your land for, you know, 700% more than you've ever seen in the market. And that is, that's a, that's a conversation starter at the donut shop in the rural areas where someone starts putting these letters out and says, Hey, did you get this letter too? And they're like, no, why didn't I get, I don't know. I don't know why you got that letter. And I did. And it, these towns are so small that even though you might think, uh, maybe a small town has like 620 people that would be classifying as a rural community, but not 620 people are farm owners. There's probably only a 10% or even 5% of those people that own land. There's just not enough acres to account for that community. So the rest of everybody else is not farming. They're in manufacturing. They're in the service industry. They're in healthcare. They're in mining. They're in forestry. There's the construction. So the idea of rural communities being only farmers and ranchers 
I think is actually getting rewritten. And that's where I found such an interesting kind of parallel, like these universes merging together where we've always thought rural communities were farmers and corn and cattle. But actually, when you look at the data, they're much more about manufacturing. And that's that's opening people's eyes. That's what's getting the developers excited and saying, well, if this small town has always produced the cabinets for the urban areas and building out these homes, these you know half million dollar homes, what else? There's the workforce. You have labor that's less expensive because cost of living is less expensive. And then you have these counties that are desperate for more tax revenue. So it is a win-win for developers to come in. They can easily build up something and bring in more manufacturing. There's yachts that are built in the middle of Kansas that are supplied to probably California and Florida and Dubai. I mean, no one thinks that the heartland is where a lot of these piecemealed manufacturing parts come from, then that's really what the rural areas are about. So it's kind of this natural progression that we've fallen into. And I think COVID has really amplified this movement to the rule. We also have the federal government that's coming in with incentives to build out infrastructure. So that's real cash. That's not the county's tax credits. That's real infrastructure cash that that's hard to say no to. So you have this clash of the new coming into the area so there's the, these conversations that I keep running into with either clients or family or friends or just, you know, picking up feed for the horses and then having these conversations with the, the cashier across the way that says, oh, my property taxes are just out through the roof. And that is the negative side of development. Unless you're actually going to sell the increase in your property is not helping you. That is something that now you pay more. So that's kind of where this article kind of got put together. Yeah, it's it's a uh, it's such a two sided thing. And it's funny you mentioned the feed store because I I grew up working in a feed mill that was built by my great grandpa in a in a farming town, and it was it was my summer work that I did every single year. And I'd sit around and listen to my uncle have the exact same conversations you're talking about. You know, with every with every farmer that came in or every rancher that came in, you know, either either they're selling grain or they're or they're purchasing grain. And it's just, you know, it starts out the same way, like, yep, how's the weather? And then it kind of migrates and pretty soon it's in the politics, right? And it always was really interesting listening to that. Um, but what you're talking about is is this this the the two-sided argument where where you have a, a company looking at coming in for a labor force. And I want to have you to kind of define what we're talking about with with commercial development, but you know, it's it's an organization coming in looking at, at a ready and able workforce. But you're right, it raises property values, but it doesn't do any good to the people in the town because if they're not selling, then they don't have that equity. It's fake money. And, mm -hmm. and so then so then it's more of a defensive posture of like all the, the line that I always hear is all these companies and people trying to get away from the problems in their areas and they bring all their problems here. And that's like the one, that's the one line you hear from everybody that like, now there's a different culture, things are going to change. And that's really what they're saying is things are going to change. It's not going to be the same thing that, that I had for, you know, generations in this area. And now we're facing down this change and there's raised taxes. 
So because you can't you can't have more infrastructure with the same money. And and so they have to raise taxes in those areas. And there is this influx of like build back rural. But there's it's it's this tug of war thing. And and COVID sort of drove that through the ceiling with the ability to one to have to have more distance in your supply chain. People realize that you can you can build somewhere and then ship it. Um, there's the ability to drop ship and 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 manufacture lean to where you don't ship or make a product until it's ordered. And then there's the ability to work remote for your remote workers out there. And so population influxes are coming in that are working remote. It's a really interesting dynamic. And so I I wanted to ask you sort of you know to define what you're talking about when you when you talk about commercial development in rural, rural communities. And I think you touched on that a little bit talking about looking at manufacturing, but I wanted to see if you could elaborate on that a little bit. Sure. So when I talk about commercial development, it's any development by a company for profit, whether it is a commercial building or subdivision that excludes the government contracts or government construction and or hiring a person directly. And then they are building a home for you on your own land. Those are not considered commercial development. So often that uh, as a commercial development, we think of a plaza, we think of a grocery store tied to some other sub type um, complementary type businesses, and they just kind of follow each other around the nation. So while that is an example, it's not just limited to a plaza as what's considered a commercial application. So that's where we're seeing, we're not seeing plazas go out to the rural area. We're seeing manufacturing going out there. We're seeing warehouses connect in these big gaps between the supply chains and the ports. I think no one really understood what our our logistics centers and everything were doing until COVID really shut down the ports. And suddenly we were at a loss for supplies and everybody is scrambling to figure out the solutions. We have the housing crisis. A lot of people like left the rule to come into the city. You had kind of this reverse uh, trout kind of upstream experience where you had people who had more money go back out into the rule to have these recreational second homes. So it, it's this real convergence of need that the community is, I think we're still trying to figure out what is it that we need out of this? We've lost a tremendous amount. Every single person has lost something, whether it's financial, emotional, family, death. Uh, there's something that we're all trying to figure out how to make ends meet. So there's such this People who have still have, and they have more. So those people have come back to the rule. They see the prices have dropped for properties. They're able to buy more and their dollar stretches. They go out and buy the RVs and the recreational vehicles. And we've seen booms in our land division around those kinds of sales. Then you have the commercial development seeing, hey, we need to build out these warehouses so that this doesn't happen to us again. So there's a real call to from Home Depots and Lowe's and Amazons and Walmarts and Targets to really set up these warehouse chains along the way. Well, those warehouses go through the heartland and a lot of rural areas. Now, Amazon and these Home Depots and Lowe's are not going to build a 
supply chain in every single county. So what really what we're experiencing is one county is really making the call, whether it's an initiative, a tax abatement, something that gets the, the eyes of the developer to come in because they're for profit. They want to make sure they can make money, whether it's basically taxed, uh, you know, free land or tax abatements or tax credits or whatever their structure is set up or bonds, they come in and it's the counties directly around them that are going to benefit the most. Those are the counties that those people are going to drive in for work. And that direct county is going to get the tax uh, benefit of that. And then the, you're going to have growth around the sides. Now, the counties outside of that, that third ring are not going to be really happy because they're not going to be benefiting from it. It's too far for job employment. And so typically we haven't had a lot of interest in there. Well, with remote work now, you have people moving directly to the third ring and living off the grid and being okay there. I've had clients they're used to public everything, sewer, water, they turn on the tap, they turn on the heater, everything works, the, the, all the pleasantries <laughs> and privileges of living in really dense urban areas. Well, now they're looking at well waters and now they're looking at it as their source of uh, water and they're looking at uh, sewer lagoons and their eyes are just popping. And then I just kind of talk them through. It's just a different system. If this is something you're still okay with, these are your options. This is the filtration system. And then they're confident and then they're okay. So those things used to really prevent people from coming out. Now it's not. They understand that it's a different system. They just need to be educated. But to be able to move to that third ring, and that's about a 45 minute ring. That has really opened up a lot of opportunities. They still work at the same place because they're remote work. They have internet access. That This is that happy medium place. So they have internet access. They can get all the deliveries from Amazon still. They can stream all the things they want to do. What has really changed in their day-to-day -day life, except they walk out and they can see the stars at night. And that is such an appeal for people who either grew up in the rural or knew that their grandparents were there and they want to come back. So all of this stuff, yes, there's pros and cons to it. And a lot of those pros and cons are going to have to get worked out at a local level. Your own community is going to be the one that decides whether commercial comes in or not. And if it's harmful for you. And if you have a commercial development that is coming in and, and taking land and eminent domain and making a mess, well, then it's everybody's responsibility because we have elected officials. They are there to decide the future land use, how this is going to go, what kind of incentives we're going to give to these uh, developers. And you need to have that conversation with them. That's the political side that people are like, well, I don't know my elected official. Well, why not? <laughs> if you've got something going on, I mean. You should probably know who you voted for. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So this is where it's like I go to these rural meetings and a lot of them are really anti-development and we're going to hire lawyers and push back. And, and I just ask, and I this is where the psychology part of me comes in and said, problem solve. What is the problem here? Okay, it's the high tax rates. It's all these things. Then I ask them, are you talking to your elected officials and to find out if the negotiations are done right? 
and well, because developers want to be a good guy. They want to be the, the one that everyone's proud about. So they can use your city as a flyer for the next project. So they want to be the good guy. And a lot of times cities and counties and even states don't realize that they can give the developers a honey-do list. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know, this is my list for my city. You want to come in, you want to get this yeah. tax. Exactly. And one of the best examples, there was uh, a town in Kansas that has the wind turbines come in. And a lot of all the other counties pushed them away. They were like, oh, you're going to ruin our cattle and you're going to ruin all these things. One city had a state rep- a state senator and he was in that negotiation. And he said, you can bring the wind turbines if you build a school, you do this road, you build this fire department, you build this police station. And, and he built out his town and they love these wind turbines. And the wind turbines love them because they are the biggest champions and they're cheerleaders of the wind industry because there was something that that developer did. That Those are the conversations to have with the developers to find out, look, we're okay, but we need these things. We need infrastructure. Can you help us with the public sewer? Can you help us with a public water line? The, the urban fringe is more like a cliff. It's not this gradual change from public sewers to sewer lagoons. It, in some areas, it is a complete drop off from one side of the street to the other. And people don't understand what sewer lagoons are. They're not septic tanks. <laughs> They're mm-hmm. lagoons, sewer lagoons exposed to the air and with a fence around, and there's supposed to be proper protocol around them. They can work fantastic. But if you don't know what that is, you're going to find your kids swimming in it. And it's going to give me a heart attack. <laughs> and the health department a heart attack. Right, right. Well, and you bring up a really good point as far as there's, there's leverageable pieces of this where you can have a commercial development participate in the community. And, and it, by all means, smaller communities should use that, that force to get commercial developments to participate and because the the one of the big things you hear about a lot in the rural towns, and I can just speak from my own personal experiences, is you get this population influx, let's say, of remote workers, or you know, I, I came from a smaller resort town area. Most of the people are loggers or ranchers, and that was it. Or every but but then it was like your tire store workers, your grocery store, your service industry, um, and those are all wages that get just blown out of the water as soon as there's a price increase in housing and. And so the the thing that you always hear is like, well, let's just put up a bill to stop the building of new houses. And it's like, that's that's actually going to accelerate the problem that you're finding because you're still going to have people that want to live there. And then if you reduce the supply, they're still going to outbid the people that already work there. You're going to drive the prices up faster if you don't have development. So if there's not new houses to buy, um, mm-hmm. you know, somebody's still going to come in with more money and buy the next house that's for sale. And no one in town is going to be able to buy that anyways. Everyone's going to be looking at higher taxes faster. You're going to have an accelerated sort of rural gentrification happening. So like you, you, you have to have the right kind of build. And then if you have, and when, when you have an increase in population, you do need an increase in commercial to offset that so that you have places to work for a new population so you need that you need that commercial effort. You have to have the right kind of partnership and balance to say like, okay, you can come in here. We want that oiled down dirt road to be a paved road now. So like, hook us up with that. 
or, or, you know, we need a new school bill because you're bringing in a new workforce and, and you're, you know, all those kind of things to get sort of a, a participation in there. Um, you know, one thing I hear a lot of is upzoning, you know, it's like dealing with population influxes by upzoning an area where you can increase the density of a, a particular zoning area to, to, you know, offset sort of the, um, what you see with, you know, higher end homes being put in and taking up more areas, like cool, then upzone another area so the people that can afford to live there is, is a way to deal with it. You don't see that attack a whole lot in the small towns. You just see them kind of reacting like, oh no, there's all these new, oh no, we can't afford our homes. And now there's these property tax increases because of, of assessments. And, and then, you know, commercial outfits want to come in and that gets fought off. And, and it's kind of, it's a little bit of shooting the communities, communities shooting themselves in the own, in their foot, because let me say this, right. Communities shooting themselves in their own foot. Right. Um, yes. Too many words at one time. Uh, so, so then you, but you're never going to stem the tide of a population increase. If it, if you're, if your community gets discovered and people want to live there, they're either going to out purchase everybody there, or you can open up, you know, good developments, well-planned developments so that they're, in their own area and you don't blow out the locals that still need to work and live. It's, it's a really, the communities feel helpless because they, they want to have some control. Like I want to limit the amount of people moving in and it's like, you can't, we live in a free country where you can do things like that. And so then it, it has to do with rolling with the punches and doing it right, which a lot of the companies or communities don't necessarily do because they don't know. And, and so they're just reacting and sort of, sort of trying to get by with this. And so it's, it's, it's a really interesting thing. Um, so what are some, well, and also, Go ahead. yeah. And, and also there's something else here. I think that sometimes the urban core can actually harm and push developers into where else to go. When you have real tight suburban areas that put city mandates that only single family stick builds are allowed, that green space around the home is a certain amount and there's certain setbacks on top of that. That creates very large lots and the homes, they stay in that that type of build. So when the builders come in and they say, look, we can't keep up with the demand of the stick build because the cities are not allowing other types of uh, building. They're not allowing 3D printing. They're not allowing modular. They're not allowing mobile home. They're not allowing RV living. They're not allowing shipping containers to be changed from accessory dwellings that are temporary to permanent. So then what are people supposed to do? You have this only mandate that says you have to do a single family. Well, it was used to be that a, a home could be built for like 250,000 in Kansas in the Midwest area. It's impossible to do that now. It's probably closer to 370 and that's not really accounting for the cost of everything else and I've seen people start a build and end up with $500,000 home. There's not $500,000 worth of quality in that home. There's not $500,000 worth of features. It is a $300,000 home that is overpriced. And there's no exits on these builder contracts. And they have to be careful when you get into these new builds that 
they're they're not designed for the consumer's benefit. They're designed to protect the builder. So that I think has created so much pressure when people can't afford that. They fall behind. They look around. The cities are archaic. They are filled with people on boards that are retired that they think back and well, in 1950, I had money. Why don't you have money? And <laughs> in 1950s, you know, I didn't have student debt. And why do you have student debt still? And it's there's just such a divide about what it takes to show up today and try to, uh, you know, provide the same resources are not there. The rate of return on college education is not there. The 401k investment return is not there. There's a lot of things that are having to be new and a creative approaches to be able to stay afloat and, you know, status quo up with the Joneses, so to speak. So this pressure on the builders to only have stick build pushes people out. And so they go into the rule where you have a lot of counties that urban fringe they don't care what you do. There's no building codes. Some of them don't even have zoning. So it's and their MO. And I've talked to the county clerk. It's like, look, you don't bother us. We don't bother you. As long as your neighbor is not reporting you, we don't care. If you build something, we only care about the sewer system. We'll come out and take a picture and, and see it. But that's it. <laughs> that's that's the rule. So, so I mean, funny, people are loving it. Yeah, there's a town just north of where I grew up that there there's zero building codes and there's nothing like that. And so like I, I ended up meeting there was a kind of a famous house along the river as you would drive up this canyon. And uh I finally met the owner one day. He was like, Oh yeah, you're the dude with the plywood castle. Like and, and, and you remember it, like, how's that house working out? Is it blown down yet? No, I love it. I love it. <laughs> DIY, that's it. I mean, it is, as it they, is, they do know. care about they care about the sewer system. That's the thing that they care about. They don't care where you get your water from. If you dig a hole, that's you, it, it, you don't good. test it. I mean, there there's reports from arsenic in well water in certain parts of rural areas because there's no testing requirements. And in yeah. order to test, yeah. you have to pay for that. So it's just like, there's just a lot of things that on a local level, every town has to figure out what is the issue. Now, there are towns, especially in Missouri, where they run campaigns, political campaigns, and they wipe out any person who is friendly to developers. And for 20 years, they block out development, so much so that on their main future landmass map, there's a huge font, like 100 150 font thing growth for growth is a cancer i swear it's i could send it to you it's amazing and they have blocked development out like it is a cancer for them what has happened to that town 20 years later there are no jobs there it is farmland People have only come and, in you, and yeah then or, so or the guess what the farmers can't work anymore because maybe they don't want to work in the on the ranch or you know that's so right a restaurant or they move away, right? The population decreases. That's right. So the generation next to them, the children are going, ah, dad is on the farm. He's not retired yet. I need a living because he's kicked me out. Where do I go? There is no more land. Everybody has locked up the land. So there's not this rotation of land available. So what is the next generation supposed to do? That's when they go into the city and they work a job because there is no jobs in this area. 
And there's also less political power when you do that too. When there's less people in an area, your voice is muted. So if yeah, you have yeah, concerns, your, your politicians don't care because you have five votes compared to the next town that has 60, right? So that's right. And and you brag about how you didn't vote for them. So how do you think that's really <laughs> going to play out? I mean, sometimes they really shoot themselves in the foot where the urban can really harm this movement by making these really rigid rules around housing. They don't allow any more development. There's even a subdivision or a suburban area in Kansas City that does not allow fast food, no fast food. So there's this whole slow movement. Well, that's great for a very small niche of people. They want that, but is that sustainable long-term and the impact that that has on the rule? Because then people need to go somewhere. Or if there's so much uh, infrastructure that needs to be built in the rule, then that energy comes back and you have skyscrapers. You start building up. And then people, there's a whole other fight about that. So it's, these are the things that happen incrementally. Decisions are made. People, they need to run for office. If they are really upset about what's going on, get, on, get your name on the ballot, run for office, have a voice at the table, talk to your elected officials. They are the ones that are at times trying to make decisions that are happening in the community. Most of the times they are not directing, they are reactive. They're getting emails from the farmers and ranchers that are pleading with them that say, I need to be able to sell my land to the highest and best use. And you block me out where I can only sell to another farmer. So you're saying I can only make $700,000, but this developer is willing to give me a hundred million. That's not yeah. fair. As a landowner, I have a right to as many options as possible for what I want my land to do. It, yeah, it's it's such an interesting topic, just overall. Like it's it really, really is. And and even even in the in the the communities that have things figured out, as soon as a new change gets thrown in there, then they're completely off balance again. And it's, it's this always trying to keep up with change and trying to control what happens. And that's the thing is like what other people do is essentially outside of everybody's control, right? If people want to move, what's your possibilities there, right? Like you can manufacture in your town the things that you've always had. And then you could put a moratorium. Nobody can move in, which I don't think is legal, you know, but I mean, like, let's, let's just <laughs> yeah. pretend that that was the case. Fair housing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so then, <laughs> then you have kind of a population increase. The kids of the people that already live there are going to be fighting for jobs that, that their parents have. And then you, like you still wouldn't control everything because you would still have problems in there. And then who's going to buy the stuff that you make. And, you know, like, right. and you, even, you know, something that's come close to maybe, maybe your, your, uh, like Amish or Mennonite communities that have manufacturing in there and they sustain, but even those communities sell externally. And so, yeah. you know, there's, there's business from that to be gained. They're, they're still selling externally. Um, so that's, it's a really, I mean, some of those dynamics might be something to look at. I don't know, but because they seem to maintain population and, and everything like that and, and a way of life, but they've also simplified everything to its most basic means. And that's not really, like feasible for a lot of communities. So yeah. even that, like, that's fine. You can be the last stand, but your land is going to be gone because of imminent domain. 
And that's the realization. That's the part where they start realizing if you, it's not in your best interest to be the last stand. If you start seeing the wagon circling around you and every single parcel is a subdivision, you are next because they will build a road through you to build the traffic and transportation. If there's any new change in development, your land is now shrinking through eminent domain. Right. In Kansas, there's very different laws about eminent domain and same with Missouri. I like what Texas is doing in their change in eminent domain. Normally when a county or commissioners set out a plan and it cuts through your land, they take your deed. So when you're negotiating, you're not negotiating whether this is happening or not. It's happening. You're negotiating the price. And the next component to that, the price, the first offer they give you is the highest. If you fight it, it will go less. I was going to say, yeah, they give you your imminent domain price. And if you fight it, you're going to get less and less and less, which it's such a... it's such an unfair thing for the landowner because it should be it should be up to private interest on that to be able to drive up their price. Because technically, if you held out to be the last, you should probably get the highest price. If you're just looking at basic right. economics, right? You're talking supply and demand. But then there comes imminent domain, and it, it gets it. It is a rough. It is a rough go. But really, that's where you know. Could you have gotten out at a good point, and could you have leveraged that into better land somewhere else? Yes. You know, that's like yes, maybe three generations live there, but you could have maximized your value in the meantime. But then, then you're asking people to sacrifice sentiment for dollars, which is very, very difficult. I mean, it's such a hard place to look at. Um, Something I wanted to ask you is what, what can, what can commercial outfits do to sort of mitigate some of the pushback they can get? Cause I've seen this before where someone will come in and they'll start making commercial moves without really talking to anybody they wine and dine the local county commissioners to get permission and they get things pushed through community doesn't community doesn't have any say and they do something like a you know private tunnel under a road or some junk like that you know you'll see things like that and everyone gets furious and and while they can't stop commerce they can sure make the commercial outfits life hell and mm-hmm. so how how can commercial outfits come in you mentioned working with communities on infrastructure but what's some other means that you know, commercial outfits can, can sort of work on the side of the community that they're, they're looking at. I think the commercial developer has to see it from the rules point of view first. If you are in, and a lot of developers don't live in the rural, they live in very nice gated communities. So just imagine you're in an HOA and someone decides that they want to do something, but they never talk to you, but it directly impacts your visibility your daily living, how you go about your business, your your A to B kind of route that you've always done. And they only talk to the HOA board. And you have an issue with that HOA board anyways. Like you've had it out with him or her and you know that they they don't have the best interest or they just have a different point of view of how to go about doing something. And you were never part of it. The plans were done and executed and you are now the impact. It doesn't matter the intention. It's the impact. And if that developer never went around to the doors to talk to them to find out, do you want this? And this is what we are thinking. We think this is a great idea and here is our presentation. If you are not going to the community first to find out if this is even something they want to get that community buy-in, you are going to have to take in a lot of public hearings where you have a lot of people out the door listening and rallying them up and getting them to talk on record about your company. 
that is not going to be helpful when people Google your company, the next project you have. Yeah. So like you these really guys act like monsters and they step on everybody's feet and they take off. Right. Help. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, wouldn't you do the same thing if you had, you know, a $5 million house and you had all this HOA stuff and someone was doing something where they created a path right through your yard, you would do the same thing. You would call up all your neighbors. You would say, this is ridiculous. We are going to go on an attack. You would do the same thing. Exactly. So why do you yeah. expect them to do anything different so act with golden rule and bring people in <laughs> right. on the conversation and actually act like a human and bring people in to get their input yeah, yeah. and if you have a good idea that you think you're bringing you doing helpful something helpful for the rule do you know that it's going to be helpful or how do you know that are you listening to your own echo chamber that is saying this is going to be helpful or have you actually talked to a rancher or farmer and find out, look, we have this opportunity. This is what we're going to do for the community. This is what we're going to get from you. This is how we think this could be a really nice long-term opportunity to build your community. Are you on board? Mm -hmm. Tell me why this is something that works and why you, what, what should I, what am I not seeing? Why aren't you going door to door? Why aren't you asking the people who live there to find out? Because you'll get an enormous amount of buy-in if you go door to door. Yeah, there was, it, I, I recall a mining outfit that came into an area that I know of and, and they wanted to do new, some new style of mining to, to get gold out of this particular river. And I mean, you know, and anybody that kind of knows about mining, it's like, there's not really a way that you can mine without disturbing the soil and releasing something like arsenic or something like that. It's just in the ground. And when you disturb it, it comes up. And so they, they started out working with conservation outfits and they were actually really good with working with conservation outfits and stuff. But, um, you know, and they held some community meetings. They probably didn't go very well, but I just remember like toward the last gasps of them trying to get this thing done is they started like giving away ice cream, like downtown and like pulling in kids to give away ice cream. And I just remember watching this, like that was your marketing plan. Like you're giving That's the worst. Cream. That's the worst. <laughs> and I think. But I mean, you know, it really were yeah. trying to get involved, but it was like, I was looking at like, this is not, you, this is not going your way. <laughs> you know, the best thing that commercial developers could do is hire a grassroots organizer or political manager because they get the culture. They get the yeah, things yeah. That you should do and not do the PR, the press releases, the door to door contact, the same way that you run elections and campaigns. That is how these de commercial developers need to see this. This is a campaign. This is something really that's going to change these people's lives and you need to have buy-in or you know what, your project may work for 10 years and then the next, you've mounted so much animosity in that community, they will kick every single person off of that commission and have an entire new board and go after your contract. Contracts in politics, one year, the next election cycle can erase what that person did. And yeah. if you're not really understanding that, you will have a trail of tears and people will not will see that record and they don't want you in town. And that's and that's something always to bring up, too, is is there is a mentality, you know, when it say, you know, a high level of, you know, you get a group of investors, high level investors, you get a corporation coming in to set up shop somewhere. And, and there probably is a little bit of like arrogance in that of like, hey, we're going to go into this this rural town. We got a bunch of hillbillies here. They probably don't know governance. And 
the, the biggest problem with that is, is yeah, you know what? Most of the people there probably didn't go to an Ivy League school to study economics. Totally true. It also does not mean they don't understand economics. And, and it, it also doesn't mean they don't understand their rights and their rules. And, it, and they're the same human being as everybody else. So if you have that arrogance thinking that you can get slip one by the people, no, they're going to catch you and they're going to handle it in their own way. And it's probably not going to be pleasant for you. Like they're going to they're going to oppose you at every step. They know their their rules probably as good as your attorneys and they're going to come after you on, you know, that's cute. You want to build this building. We're going to shut off your water rights. You know, stuff like that where mm-hmm. it, they, they are going to make they're going to make their stand and they're going to make things hard for you if you don't decide to be a teammate with them and you think you're going to run them over. And and it's it's always so funny that that there does that does happen. I, there was a ski hill that came into an area that I know of, and it, they started out like that, just kind of running everything over. And I remember I personally boycotted that for like twenty years, and they went through like three different rounds of ownership because they failed three times of, of bankruptcy and couldn't get this thing off the ground. And now I don't think the community had a ton to do with that. It was economics and all kinds of other things, but. Then, uh, you know, a new group comes in that concentrates on user experience, making the the hill, you know, accessible to the community and, and working deals to make it, you know, you buy a pass there, you get passes to other mountains. And they really worked on on sort of that user side experience. And now you've got the company buying or the the uh, the county buying in. You have the community buying in and it's taken them 20 years to get this thing going. Right. But it's it's a it's the difference between working with a community and just doing things with the community is in the way and you're just working it and, and i think that that's something that that the commercial outfits really have to pay attention to well they underestimate the rule because exactly. they're yes there's street smarts there's book yes. smarts and then there's a network that is ruthless <laughs> <laughs> and i think there is an underestimated approach here that commercial developers think oh well if i talk to one person in the metro there's what 700,000 people in that county nobody's going to know that i had this tiff with one person okay great you go to the rule there's only maybe 6 families who own the entire county and they all talk so if you kicked one person off it's whether you had dinner with somebody that is on somebody's bad yes. side like it's the, the, <laughs> there, there's such a political culture between you know oh there because there's such history where everybody knows everybody's um business and they've known it for the last 50 to 100 years they just they categorize they stereotype this is kind of the rigidity sometimes of the rural area so if you think you're going to pull one over on them and say well uh they're not gonna they don't have a network oh you do not under you do not understand the rule they will make one phone call and the entire the entire area knows what you just did and that network will cut you off they will put pressure on that one family that was interested in selling and the guilt the mother's guilt the grandmother's (laughs) guilt they will all come at you and keep pelting you so there is something very real when i get contacted by a farmer it is mostly off market it is quiet 
because yeah. they don't want that pressure. They don't want people, their neighbors to give them hell because they're selling. They're, they're, they feel like they're a sellout or something, that they've broken the gates and now the development can come in. And at the end okay. of the day, a lot of them look at that and say, but I have to, because this is my livelihood. I need to sell this land for top dollar. This again and again, I hear I need to sell this land for as much as I can, because this is all that I can give my kids and I can't work anymore. I can't keep up the ag zoning because it requires, you know, crops and livestock. I can't do it. But if they put it out, if they put a shingle out there and put, let everyone know they're selling, they will be bombarded doors on, knocking on the doors at church, at the office, at the doctor's office, at the, I mean, everywhere, because everyone will say, why are you selling out? And that, that amount of shame is enough for people to not do this. So right. they do it anyways, but they do it very quietly. And, and yeah, then just because they're a part of the community, like they, they don't want to be seen as negatively affecting, you know, the people that you know, that probably been around for yeah. generations, you know, they don't want to do right. that. People, people genuinely do care about each other in these communities. And, and that's another reason why commercial outfits have to act with empathy and have to actually put themselves in the community's shoes. Um, you mentioned, you talked a little bit about, yeah. sorry, I, what were you going to say? The, you know, the movie or the TV series, Stranger Things, where yes. the uh, opposite world, where they said, if you touch any of the vines, it touches the whole. That's the rule. If you yeah. touch one person, it, it radiates through. So that's what's different about the rule. That's not the same as urban. There's that network is so strong. Just be really mindful of how you approach. And if you trip over a vine, know that you've just awakened the Kraken. <laughs> <laughs> and they will come for you tractors and all <laughs> you you were talking about taxation a little bit and i found that really fascinating in your article where you know mm-hmm. one of the big burdens of of you know growth and change in a community is increased taxes and while communities don't want you know an influx of population because really their infrastructure isn't built for it they have to react and be able to be able to handle it um but at the same time to be able to offset any increase in taxes, you do need a population increase. And there's a sort of a balancing act there that communities have to keep in mind. I didn't know if you could shed any light on that a little bit. There is a danger zone that developers have to be very mindful of. If you jump too far and skip over too many rocks, too many counties, and jump way too far into real rural areas that are farther than an hour, hour and a half out, that infrastructure won't be there for probably the next 30 years. So that can actually cause harm to the communities because you can build out these massive things. What you're doing is you're draining the bank account of that county. How long is it going to take to replenish that those taxes. They don't make much off of ag. Ag land is a very different structure than residential properties. So usually you have ag to offset your taxes. (laughs) That's it. And so then, but then you have also other like Fort Riley and Fort Leavenworth where there's no taxes coming from that at all. If there's too many government buildings, you don't get any taxes. Then you have to shift your dynamics to sales tax. That's the only income revenue you can get is the amount of sales tax that you can charge but that really can hurt the the small amount of people that are there because at the end of the day if bread is ten dollars because eight dollars
dollars of it is sales tax, you are you're going to implode your county. So there's such a balance of just because you see something really cheap all the way out there, don't skip over the counties that do have the infrastructure and ready to go and have the bank account to afford a tax abatement and a credit. You have to be cognizant of how long can a city how long is it going to take to recover that amount of tax that they're giving you? And do they have it? There's many rural areas that will raise their hand for, for business to come into town. But at the end of the day, does their spreadsheet allow for the recovery of that in a time frame that does not implode? We have hospitals that have left because the, there's not enough money there. We've had everybody from towns that got there and developed to just ghost towns. How is that helpful? That actually harmed because you you siphoned all the money out of that area. That's kind of, I think, something that at the end of the day, the, can't, the elected officials, they really need to be cognizant of how much they're giving away. And if that can be recovered in a time frame that allows for people to come in, if it's a 10-year project, can you survive 10 years or did you just cut your feet off at th year three? And this, these developers are going to skip town. They're done. They got their credit. They're out. They've got their money. But your town, that's some of the, the history that a lot of the farmers really come to the table with the real truth of the past, the 80s of, hey, we want you to go farm out there. But then when it came to no one had bought their, their grain or no one bought these things, there was no buyback. And that's the problem right. where that historical knowledge is there of don't come into my town unless you're truly going to help us. Like the like the mill areas, that's, I mean, it's, it's become an epidemic across the Northwest, especially where towns were set up around sawmills and as as those have closed then you have a population with nowhere to make a living and that's that's resonated all over the northwest i know um hey i just wanted to make sure we're taking you know best use of time and i know i've, I've nabbed like an hour every time here in your afternoon um, oh, you're I, wanted fine. See, I wanted to see if you had any takeaways um you know on on you know between commercial and community sort of how to best handle this if you are a developer looking at a smaller community, um, what's the bullet points that you should live by? I think you need to know why you're doing it. If, is it really there to help the community? You have to have both sides. You cannot be just profit driven all the time because you will have a very short career. That kind of stuff will haunt you. You'll make poor decisions. You will, people will understand you're only about money. So I think you have to sit down with your team and figure out why are you doing this? Is this really something that's about helping the communities? If it is, then you should be able to stand by your word and go door to door and pitch it. And if the community buys in and they then they are loyal to you, they will make sure that the next generation also is employed by that manufacturing plant. It is now become a family business that they work at this because they are proud. But if you don't have that buy in and they sniff a rat and they start going around and say, mm -mm, this doesn't add up, you're willing to take all these, you know, drain our county's bank account and not provide us good paying jobs, or you're about to come in, take all our credits and then ship all the jobs out. So nobody in town even has a job from you. So some of these things are you're signing up for something. People in the rule will tell if you're authentic or not. You need to be honest. 
And even if it's not going to be in their favor, if you're honest with them, they respect you. If you do something shady where you lie to them and eventually they'll find out, it will haunt you. You'll have pickets, you'll have protests, you'll have people who don't want to work there. And eventually you'll probably end up closing shop because it's not going to work out. That's pretty sage advice. Angelina, you have a wealth of knowledge. It's very, very clear and, and very passionate on the subject, especially, um, you know, looking at the dynamics of rural communities and, and understanding as well commercial development. So I, I appreciate the time that you've been able to give and the knowledge that you've been able to share very much. Um, you're out of Kansas City. So th tell me how somebody that wants to work with you might get a hold of you. So nationalland.com uh, is a phenomenal website. It has all the access to all the agents in the area. You can let it, you can look down to see what our specialties are uh, and reach out, talk to me. I have a podcast called landontherange.com where I go into more uh, land knowledge for the landowner and people who are wanting to purchase land. So much of it is about land rights, making sure that informed decisions are there and the options for what you're presented with. And I think there's a real need for education for the farmers and the ranchers and landowners to know the value of what they have and to sit down and be okay talking to a developer. Don't look at them like there's a big bag boogeyman. At times they can be the golden ticket for the Willy Wonka chocolate bar. And there are times where we all wish we could get that golden ticket. Absolutely. And I'll provide links to your podcast and, and your page on national land on, on the links for the podcast here. Um, again, thank you so much for your time. This has been great. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It was a pleasure talking about this. This concludes episode number 11 of the National Land Realty podcast, discussing commercial development in rural communities with land professional Angelina Lawson from Kansas City, Missouri. You can learn more about land ownership and the buying and selling of land at nationalland.com. Hey there, listener. I noticed that you're still hanging out, probably listening to the music. But uh, what I wanted to do was remind you to check out our Land Tour 360s at nationalland.com. These, these land tours are innovative, interesting, and nobody else in the industry does this. Check out our site. Look for any listing that has Land Tour 360 featured on it. You can tour our listings in three dimensions. Zoom in, get a ground's eye view, watch videos from the ground, zoom back out look at things from the sky view, then zoom back in on properties that have 3D views of, of the houses that are on the properties. This is called a Matterport viewing. It's a 3D viewing system for, for housing. Check out Land Tour 360. It should blow you away. And carry on with your day. Have a good one and see you on the next episode.